So happy daylight savings time to you. All right, stay awake on me now. Don't be falling asleep. I always propose that we just have church an hour later on this Sunday, right? But I always get vetoed on that. Greg's thinking about the visitors that might come and show up an hour early. So anyway, well, let's dive in. Let me pray and we'll dive in. Uh, Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you so much for calling us to gather and just all of your all of your people that are willing to get up early and come to be together and to worship you. And just pray, God, that you'd fill me right now. Fill us all. Give us ears to hear and help me to speak the words you want spoken this morning. Thank you for just a great passage to talk about. We just thank you for your spirit and your word and the power that you have behind you, yourself and your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be discontinuing the series in Luke that Greg has been in the middle of, and we're going to pick up right where he left off, the, the, uh, Luke 6, 12 through 26. And the first section there is the selection of the apostles, and I will just read through these verses, and they'll also be up there on the screen. So uh, starting in verse 12, it said, In these days he, meaning Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And then Jesus ministered to the great multitudes in verse 17 and following. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and the crowd sought to touch him, but power came out from him, and he healed them all. And then he starts to give some beatitudes. Verse 20 says, And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you should be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And then he pronounces woes. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And that's God's word for us this morning. And um, obviously there's four sections there, the selection of the apostles. Uh, Jesus ministering to that multitude, Jesus teaching some beatitudes, and Jesus pronouncing some woes. 
let's just dive into the selection of the apostles, uh, which is verses 12 through 16. We see Jesus uh, going up to a mountain to pray, first thing, and similar to what Moses used to do, right? So he's kind of mirroring that leadership. Um, and Jesus fa- was faced with a set of world-changing decisions. Right? He had a lot on his mind that he was thinking about who would be his apostles. An apostle is a special messenger of Jesus, a sent one, it says, and these are the people that he would send out into the world to to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, right? Jesus had the big picture of the world-changing church in mind, right? I don't know as the people of that day realized all that was going to happen, but it was a big deal. This would be the first set of leaders, but really he said not the column leaders, the first set of servants that the church would have to help lead. So, you know, if Jesus prayed all night for that decision, how much more should we be praying for the decisions that we face, right? And that's the first point, the the simple point that covering our decisions in prayer is extremely important when we face things. So uh, Jesus came down, he selected those 12 apostles, and the choice of uh, the number 12 has some significance. Uh, There were 12 patriarchs in Israel. And those were the uh, Jacob's 12 sons that founded the 12 tribes of Judah, or 12 tribes of Israel, rather. So we see this pattern of, of 12s. Uh, and this kind of shows some continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. Right? The church of today has not replaced Israel of the Old Testament, but we've joined Israel as one people of God together. We've been grafted in as Paul talks about in Romans 11. So now all true believers are God's people, both Old Testament and New Testament. We're all going to be together one day, and that's going to be a pretty neat day of celebration. Lots of interesting people to talk to, I'm sure. I'm looking forward to talking to a few of them. Um, So uh, Jesus um, chose these 12 men. And these guys would, you know, they would see some amazing things. They would see Jesus do some awesome things and see some awesome things happen. But they also uh, suffered greatly and sacrificed greatly. And most of them died for their faith, right? And sometimes critics say that these apostles, they, they just made up the stories about Jesus for their own fame and for their own benefit. But if that's the case, why would they suffer the way that they did? and die for something that they knew was a lie, right? When they started to feel the heat, and then when they decided things weren't going well, they could have simply stopped preaching. If it was not true, they could have changed their story to avoid some of the heat and the suffering and escape death, but they did not do that. And they continued on and were faithful to the end. And so point two is this, the willingness of the apostles to suffer for Christ gives great credence to their testimonies, right? And that's always really encouraged my faith whenever I find myself in doubts to realize these guys are the ones that saw it and they died, they suffered and died for it. Keep proclaiming Christ. So all that said, these guys were not all that godly when they when they first started out. They were ordinary guys. The Bible doesn't hide their flaws, which is encouraging to me. Uh, and it's, hopefully it's encouraging to all of you 
that God can use anyone. Uh, at one point, James and, James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans, right? So not, not very loving were they at that point in, in Luke 9. But later on, John is known as the apostle of love, right? His famous words were, love one another in John 13. So that's what Jesus does to human hearts as he transforms us to be more loving. Uh, one time Peter pulled out his sword, cut a guy's ear off, right? Not hospitable at all, but later on, uh, Peter said, show hospitality to one another without complaining, right? because he was transformed. These guys are they're sometimes hot-headed, sometimes impulsive and hateful, even ethro- ethnocentric but they were transformed to love by Jesus. They were transformed to love the entire world. That's what time with Jesus usually does, right? Uh, Point three is this. Jesus transforms ordinary people into extraordinary servants. Transforms us. Yet I should say that time with Jesus does not necessarily bring transformation. Just look at the last guy on the list, uh, Judas, right? He was one of the 12. He had all that time with Jesus. He had all that time hearing Jesus' teachings, seeing his miracles, and still he betrayed Jesus, turned against him. So it's good good for us to realize that, you know, just just time in church, time in the Bible, time around good teachings, those those are great and essential things for our growth, but they did not necessarily mean that we're going to be transformed. They did not transform Judas, right? And point four is that it takes time with Jesus and surrender to Jesus, right, to bring true transformation. Sometimes we can get busy with doing our stuff and going through our Christian motions and just forget about surrendering. So we we should all ask ourselves, have I really surrendered today to Christ, right? Am I changing? Am I being becoming more loving? Am I surrendered to Christ today, or do, do I think I'm doing fine because I'm always at church and Bible study and I do all these meetings? Am I becoming more loving or just more knowledgeable? And I know for me, it's I definitely need more time with Jesus and more surrender. There's always the, the temptation to sort of get hard and, and just wander away. And that said about Judas, you know, even Judas had a purpose in God's plan. Uh, he set Jesus up for the cross, right? And we all needed Jesus to go to the cross. So the all-night prayers for Jesus, for the apostles, they, they did not stop the actions of Judas, but the actions of Judas did not stop the sovereign purpose of God in having Jesus go to the cross for us. So, you know, sometimes we get discouraged because we feel like God's not answering our prayers, right? Um, Sometimes we get discouraged and, and we, we ask, you know, why is God not responding? Why did give me, God give me this Judas problem that I have, whatever it might be? We don't realize the awesome things that God's doing behind the scenes with a problem like that. It seems like a huge deal, a terrible tragedy, but it turns out to be a blessing in the end, right? And I'll never forget when we tried to sell our first house. This was back in 2012. We felt like God wanted us to upsize, you know, and we, we were overcrowded in there with all the kids, and we 
We just prayed and prayed, and we just could not sell it. And finally, our realtor said, well, I've got some experience renting properties. We can help you guys rent that out. And I was like, yeah, I don't really want to be a landlord. And, like, we got all this other stuff going on. And, like, but like we were like, well, I guess if God's not going to answer our prayer, we're just going to have to do this thing and put up with this big hassle. And that was 2012 when God refused to answer our prayer. So we kept the house. We became landlords. Do you know how much that house has increased in value since 2012? It's just astronomical, and we we had no way of knowing that. We were praying for the opposite thing, and God is like, nope, doing something different. You guys are just going to have to wait and see. So uh, point five is that God sometimes blesses us by not answering our prayers the way that we want, right? I'm sure the apostles uh, didn't, they weren't excited about having Judas on the team at that point early on and probably thought he was ruining things, but he had his purpose. So whatever you're going through right now might seem like a terrible situation. You may wonder why God has put you, put that Judas problem in your life. It may seem like he doesn't care, but he knows what he's doing, right? He sees the end from the beginning, and he's got a good plan. So on to the next section, uh, Jesus ministers to the great multitude. This is verse 17 and following. We should have it up there, yeah. Um, it says, and he came down with them, stood on a level place with a, a great crowd of his disciples, a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So this is just an amazing scene. You've got people are hearing about Jesus, his teaching, and his miracles, and they're just flocking to him at this point. So it was a great multitude of people from all over the place, some disciples and many others. And if you think about what's going on, strategically, Jesus is putting his team in place right, at this time to, as the crowds begin to grow. Right? So this, this Christianity thing that we're in is definitely a team sport. All of us have our roles to play. All of, all of us have our jobs as we minister to the multitudes that are around here. You know, there's no lack of people that need help. So Jesus is healing those with diseases, he's curing those who are troubled by unclean spirits. And point six is this, that Jesus is demonstrating his power and authority as the Son of God because he knows that it's crucial that people believe in him. We just sang about the, the powerful name of Jesus, right? People need to know who he was and they needed to be able to believe in him. So, especially since he's about to begin teaching them about his kingdom, giving them some sober warnings, right? It's also interesting that uh, Jesus practices what he preaches. His ministry is just not a ministry of words, but it's a ministry of actions. He is uh, helping people. He's busy loving people, healing them, delivering them, as we should be busy loving people, helping them praying for their healing and their needs and giving them the good news so that they can be set free. Right? 
So point seven is Jesus practiced what he preached, and so should we. Right? And now we're going to get into the sermon that he preached there. It's easy to preach a sermon on one of Jesus' sermons. I could just read it and sit down, right? <laughs> but then but then they wouldn't have enough time for their for their quick ministry, so I'll have to keep I'll have to keep going. Um, some call this the Sermon on the Plain as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount because it says that he stood on a level place this time. Right? And, and you'll notice some similarities to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 or Matthew 5 through 7. There are various explanations, but it just seems like this is simply a shorter version containing like some of the same truths for a different audience. And oftentimes, you know, important truths need to be repeated at different times for different people, especially in those days with no, no internet, and you got to get the word out by, by traveling around and preaching. So uh, Jesus starts off with four blessings and four woes. And the formal, the formal definition of a woe is an exclamation of pain and pity for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. Right, so, so basically, woe to you means I feel pain and pity for you for what's coming your way. Right? It could serve as a warning. And uh, so there's two sets of four, as I said, four blessings, four woes, and they each kind of pal- parallel each other. So the, the main theme here is like the great reversal between the poor and the rich. You know, they're going to change places in the kingdom. The great reversal between the hungry and the well-fed those who weep and those who laugh, and those rejected and those spoken well of. So Jesus is basically saying, you know, things are one way now, but um, when my kingdom comes, the tables will be turned. So uh, some people misinterpret this passage. It's it's important for us to understand it's not a list of like four to-dos and four things not to do, right? Jesus is not saying that you need to become poor, sad, hungry, and unpopular so you can go to heaven. Like that's not the that's not the way it works, and we'll see that. Um, he gets into the beatitudes here, and the first verse is verse twenty. It says, "And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God.' Right? Blessed means happy or fortunate." We like that. We like to be happy and fortunate. Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. It's interesting that he does not say poor in spirit like it says in Matthew 5. So here Jesus simply says, blessed are you who are poor. So poor here in Luke could simply mean just destitute, just without money or without material material things. Um, and he's not saying that that poverty in itself is a blessing because it's only a blessing when it's accompanied by trust in God and trust in Jesus, and saving faith in Jesus. You could be poor and not be blessed if you don't have Jesus, and you go to your grave like without him, right? So I, I think that Jesus is saying here, blessed are those who are poor in material things, and also those who believe in me, because that makes them a part of my kingdom, right? Now, uh, on the other hand, poverty sometimes is a blessing when it humbles our hearts and forces us to trust in Jesus so one day we can be truly rich. I love uh, the way James 
lays this out in James 2.5, and this is up on the screen. Uh, James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So that's awesome. People are much better off being poor and following Jesus and having a part in the kingdom than being rich and not having a part in the kingdom. Oftentimes people don't turn to God until they're humbled in some way. Poverty has a way of doing that. You have to hit bottom before you look up. So um, the poor who belong, the poor who believe in Jesus belong to the kingdom of God, and receive the blessings of the kingdom. This is the way that Jesus comforts the poor. And then twenty, verse 21, says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And from what I can tell, you who are hungry refers to people that are physically hunger, hungry, and it may also refer to uh, people that are hungry for God's help, hungry for God's presence. So for believers, you know, these hungers won't last forever. That's what Jesus is promising. God's often faithful here to satisfy our physical hunger in this life. I know he does for me. Linda was making the burritos just last night, you know, and so he always takes care of me. Uh, But more importantly, he satisfies our, our spiritual hunger to the degree that we draw near to him, right? Psalm 107.9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And so we do get satisfaction in God here in this life. Yet I think if we're really honest with ourselves, it's, it's a, a real struggle to be consistently satisfied with God here in this world. Our satisfaction tends to wax and wane depending on whether we're drawing near to Christ or or drifting away from him. And I know for me, I'm always trying to get back to a place where I'm satisfied in God. It's it's an everyday struggle. It takes focused effort to be thankful when I'm not feeling thankful. That happens a lot. i got to work on it. It takes focused effort to be content when I'm not feeling content. And that also happens in this world. It takes focused effort to have Times in God's presence when I'm truly satisfied with Him and finding my joy in Him. But, you know, I know that all that's possible. I know that those good things are possible because I've experienced it, right? I know many of you have experienced just real joy with God, satisfaction in Him. And so we do have those mountaintop experiences, and we also have struggles in the valleys. We find some level of satisfaction here on earth But if we're honest, we realize that it's incomplete. It can never really compare with what it's going to be like when we see Jesus face to face, right? When when that great reversal has finally happened that we're looking forward to. So I wanted to share, uh, it seems like I share this verse every time I preach, but uh, Linda's favorite verse, one of my favorites too, Psalm 1611, says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand and pleasures forever. So there are present day and, and future fulfillments of these promises. We do experience 
fullness of joy in his presence here on earth. But when it comes, when his kingdom comes in full, it's going to be a whole nother level, as they say. So we have all that to look forward to. This is how Jesus continues to comfort the hungry with the promise of his satisfying presence in this life, even more so when his kingdom comes. So uh, moving on to verse, the second part of 21, 21b, it says, Blessed are you who weep, for, for you shall laugh. Again, we have a both a present life and a future fulfillment of this. Those of us who, who follow Christ, we do experience grief. <clears throat> our God often heals those things in our lifetimes. Uh, Psalm 147.3 uh, says, he heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. Right? So oftentimes he does that, but even when he doesn't completely heal us of all of our wounds in this life, we have his assurance that in the consummated kingdom, he'll do what he says in Revelation 21.4. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. This is how Jesus comforts the weeping. And then in verse 22, he goes on and says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And, you know, there are, there are difficult teachings in the scriptures and um, difficult things that, that people don't like. And there's no shortage of people that hate God because of those teachings. And then when we speak up for him, we catch some of that hatred as well. So, you know, we always want to be as kind and as loving as we possibly can but sometimes that won't matter. Sometimes God, God's word will bring division with some people. Sometimes God will bring division even with our own families. Right? And that's very painful. But uh, Jesus warned us about that. Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Jesus said uh, some hard things. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Right? So we know that there will be difficulties, but whatever we go through for Christ here on this earth is not going to be missed by him. Right? Even when following Jesus is hard, we can rejoice. We're in good company with the prophets the saints that have gone before us, and our God promises that our reward will be great in heaven. And this is how he comforts the persecuted. So point eight is this. Jesus comforts the suffering believers with the promise that the tables will be turned in the coming kingdom. This is what this is all about. <clears throat> and now uh, Jesus pronounces some woes. My note said it's 30 minutes till here. I think, I, I think I'm doing good. Right. So as I said before, um, 
Woe to you means I feel pain and pity because of what's headed your way, right? And Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Verse 25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So we see this great reversal happening now that we've been talking about. In contrast with the disciples that had given up everything to follow Jesus, now Jesus is speaking to the people who refuse to give up anything to follow him. He's saying woe to those people. These woes that Jesus pronounces are the opposite of the benefits that unbelieving people received in this life, and they're the opposite of the blessings that are received by true believers. And the whole passage just contrasts two different worldviews. One worldview values material things and present-day pleasure, and one worldview values the kingdom of God and, and future pleasure. So Jesus shows the reversal that will happen between the people in these two camps. So on in verse 24, it says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And this is a solemn warning that always gets my attention, you know, because I feel like by historical standards, by like worldwide standards, if you compare, you know, what we earn, and if we compare the material blessings that we have, benefits that we have, we're, we're all rich. You know, everybody in this room is rich if you look at things that way. Most people in past generations didn't have nearly what we have. Uh, most people around the world right now don't have nearly what we have. And so what do we make of this woe, right? A couple of things. Uh, first of all, Scripture teaches us that it's dangerous to be rich, because we can tend to delight in material things rather than God, and that's, a, that's always a temptation for me. We can also tend to put our trust in money rather than in God, and that's always a temptation, right? Um, so it's dangerous to be rich, and it's fatal to be rich when our worldly wealth convinces us that we don't need God at all. Right? Those who are rich in worldly wealth and completely poor in faith They've already received their consolation. They have have got the good that they're going to get, and soon it will be time for poor believers to become rich. So is this woe meant for all rich people? You know, do we all fall under this woe because we have so much? That's the that's the million dollar question if I could if I could pun, right? Uh, But I like how Grant Osborne uh, explains this. He's a theologian and New Testament scholar. He says this, it's critical to realize that this is not an indictment on all rich. There are wealthy wealthy followers of Jesus in the gospel, <clears throat> even in this gospel, gospel of Luke, like Zacchaeus and Joseph of Arimathea, but their wealth to them is a gift from God, and they serve him with it. It is not the fact of their wealth that renders so many of the rich guilty, but what they do with it and what part God plays in it. Wealth should be seen as an opportunity to serve God in a new way by using possessions to glorify him and to help others. Right? That's what Grant Osborne says. 
So it seems like Jesus is condemning the rich person who's completely focused on his own possessions and his own pleasures without concern for what God wants or or without concern for other people. This is a self-centered and faithless rich person that Jesus is calling out here. And, you know, in this point in studying this out, I was thinking to myself, you know, I've heard that said, that, you know, he's not condemning all rich people, but, like, that's what this guy Grant says, you know, and that's what other preachers says. Like, what what other scriptures do we have to to, to back up this idea, <clears throat> right, that it's not it's not against all rich people. So um, what what I found through the help of a commentary was uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. And this is Paul giving some instructions to all of us that consider ourselves rich. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God gives us good things to enjoy here on this earth. It says they, meaning the rich people, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So those are the instructions uh, for those of us who consider ourselves rich. And notice there that Paul doesn't say, you know, all you rich people become poor, right? And then you can get into heaven. He simply says, be generous, right? And God may ask you to sell everything, you know, and that's that's a different story. But we're talking in generally what's taught here. So point nine is this. The rich in this present age should be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. And moving on to verse 25, it says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And this continues to just describe the rich people that are so full of what the world has to offer that they have no hunger for God, no room for Him. Right? Having plenty is not always a blessing. And verse 25b says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So again, we see this reversal between those who weep and those who laugh. It's obviously not a condemnation of joy and laughter because we're we're told that we should have joy, we should rejoice. But there is a laughter that's condescending towards other people. There are those who laugh at those who are less fortunate. There are those who laugh at the teaching of the scriptures. There are those who laugh at those of us who follow those teachings. They may seem happy in this life, but without faith in Christ, they won't be happy in eternity. So Jesus is is issuing a wake-up call in hopes that people that don't believe will turn to him and will believe in him and and be delivered. So... Made it to the last verse, verse 26. It says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And, you know, many in many ways the easy road is to just kind of go along with what's popular 
in the culture or maybe just be silent when something controversial comes up, um, maybe to say things that make other people feel better, even when it may not be helpful to them in the long term, right? This is, this is really hard uh, these days. And there's a temptation to shy away from talking about the difficult truths in hopes that you'll make people like you or make people feel better or just not have an awkward situation, right? And we want to be as kind as possible, but we need to have the realization that when we speak these hard truths, uh, there's times that it will help. There's times when people will repent and turn to Christ, uh, but there's also times where it won't matter. People won't like it. And uh, but we just we do it for their own good. We do it out of love. We just need to be careful not to be self-righteous, condescending towards people. So point ten is this: believers need to be gentle and loving, yet bold in speaking the truth for the good of those who need Christ. So in conclusion, we just see the contrast here uh, between the two different worldviews: material worldview and the kingdom worldview. We see warnings and woes for those with a totally faithless, materialistic, selfish worldview. And we see eternal blessings for those believers in Jesus that have a kingdom worldview. And point 11 is this, that Jesus promises a great reversal for his people when his kingdom comes in full. Amen? Let's go to him in prayer and thank him. Uh, Lord God, we just thank you this morning for uh, the grace you have shed on us. God, we recognize fully that we deserve to be under those woes, but you have sent your Son to die for us, suffer in our place, pay for our sins, so that we could receive your grace and forgiveness by faith in Christ and, and be under the blessings of your kingdom be a part of that kingdom. We're so thankful for that. Lord, we're so thankful that you have have called men and women to, to be your messengers, God, to, to proclaim your good news, to make disciples, and that your plan is carried forward over 2,000 years even to this day. And we still have your word, and we still have your good news, and we just praise you for all of this. Pray you'd humble our hearts. Help us to just always be surrendered to you. Remind us when we're not, God. Thank you for your blessings. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Am